We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. I'm Jason Estopinol. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer here in Kona, Hawaii. And on the other line is Dr. Mitch Chase. Aloha, brother. Jason, hello, man. And aloha <laughs> to you. I'm so glad to be with you. I received that aloha. Uh, Dr. Chase is the preaching pastor at, help me with this one, yeah, Cosmos Dale. Cosmos Dale? That's right. Okay. Uh, he's the preaching pastor at Cosmos Dale Baptist Church professor at Boyce College and Southern Seminary. Yeah, I'm part-time there at those Part, schools. Yep. Part-time there. So humble. He just wants to make sure we all hear that. <laughs> oh, man, you know. Yeah, it's been a blessing to be a part of those schools. Uh, Dr. Chase is the author of a, a few books. One is Behold Our Sovereign God, The Gospel is for Christians. Another one is the Daniel Commentary in the Crossways in Crossways ESV Expository, Expository Commentary Series. And he recently re released a book that we'll be discussing today called 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, Kregel Academic 2020. I've been trying to connect with, uh, man, on this book for like, like four or five months. So I'm really excited. It's finally, we're finally doing it. And just as a side note for the listeners, Kregel has um, offered up, we're going to give away two copies of the book. So to be entered, um, come and find us on Facebook, The Layman's Lounge, like us, and then share this interview, and you'll be entered. We'll announce the winner in one week. So anyways, brother, here we go. Okay. Typology and allegory sounds dreadfully boring, like, <laughs> like a mere academic exercise for like upper escalon Christians. But before like we can even get one page in your book you have us come corrected when your opening sentence sentence you say this literally the first word of the the first word of the book joy is the word that comes to mind when i reflect on writing about typology and allegory and i know it's the whole circumstance of you writing the book as well as the subject but brother i resonate with that i i really do i think for me the joy came with being able to as you say quote to grasp the unity of the bible I don't know why there's such a joy in that, but they're really, really like getting the forest for the trees. There's just, there's something, maybe you could explain that, what that thing is. But that said, can you tell us like what itch that identifying allegory and typology and, and shadows and echoes and all what, what itch does it scratch for us that it like ultimately brings joy? You know, I think as Bible readers, we want to find delight in reading the scriptures. And uh, the whole purpose of scripture is to testify to Christ. If we are reading the Bible in a way that is in line with its purpose, that it exists to point to Jesus, well, I would expect the natural effect that would have on our emotions uh, to thrill us, to uh, have delight overflowing and, and I think as we see um, Christ in the Word of God, in the Old and the New Testaments, the natural experience of delight is, is due to us reading Scripture as it is meant to be read with Christ 
uh, as uh, as the object and so and the subject. So I, I think in line with the created purpose of scripture, you know, we we find our joy in sync with that. It's like a very simple, but sort of like it, it just makes sense. Like we are we humans are made to eat like bread and water and a balanced diet. We're not made to live off of like Jolly Ranchers or whatever. Hmm. So I think when we're just eating a a balanced diet you're like oh i'm kind of optimal right now but i got to say that that verse in luke 24 32 on the road to emmaus they said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while we talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures and yeah your book really sets sets us on that like on that road and it's joyous okay so you said um you said many people quote read a bible that has been too compartmentalized in their minds so they don't see or enjoy its coherence and continuity, end quote. Can, I'm going to say that again. Many people read a Bible that's been too compartmentalized in their minds. So they don't see or enjoy its coherence and continuity, end quote. Can you perhaps like give us a snapshot of how many like folks read the Bible in sort of a truncated fashion and maybe offer up an example? Sure. Well, I think I think to start off, we have to acknowledge that the Bible is a 66 book canon that's a lot to wrap our minds around. The story is big uh, and it's certainly a redemptive epic. And we want to we want to give ourselves to studying the scriptures. But um, some of this may come down to the way certain churches establish discipleship programs or curriculum that may take them a little bit here and there and everywhere, piecemealed experiences with a few verses here and not much overall context or or even awareness of the storyline of scripture. And, uh, and so I'm afraid that what we can find ourselves doing as disciples is time will pass. And, uh, you know, we, we know a little bit of Bible here, a few verses about this character over here, but in terms of the order, uh, the unfolding epic of scripture, the storyline, that that actually may elude us for a long time. And we might not even be aware of how crucial that can be to put pieces together. So I look at it as if, you know, let's say you, you're you given this uh, this bag full of jigsaw puzzle pieces and nobody ever gives you the front part of the box. You know, the, the picture of how all the pieces fit. I mean, you can pull out those pieces from your bag and you can sort through colors and shapes and you can, you know, you can put some stuff together. There's nothing like though, having the big picture before you, it makes everything fit so much easier. So I find that uh, my own experience and in our, in our church and with students, um, the Lord blesses us as we seek to put the whole Bible in front of us and I think it, I think it increases our delight as Bible readers. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, it's not like the norm, uh, if you will, like most churches I've, I've, you know, I grew up in or I went to literally had nothing, nothing like this. It was like you said, piecemeal, you know, it was a, a pearl. Oh, look at this nugget I've mined out, you know, and I, I'm going to tattoo on my face, but it, it was, there was, there was no connection to the story. And, you know, this isn't like me sort of ragging on anything, but I'm curious, like, and I just discovered this, like reading, you know, your heart is Voss on my own. I didn't yeah. hear from anyone. And so I don't know if I'm kind of annoyed. Like, how come, how come, I, how come I had to be like 37 when I like finally was able to read the Bible? You know, I think some of this is a product of our 21st century situation and overflow of what was going on in the 1900s. And, um, and it's not, um, 
it's not the same across church history. What we would want for ourselves to read with an instinct to see Christ, that's really the dominant way the Bible has been read by theologians and Christian um, interpreters and commentators throughout the great tradition of the saints. That's actually really good news uh, because we're not trying to do anything new, but what we can find is that we can actually in our own interpretation be an exception instead of the rule by not attending to Christ in the scriptures or not having discipleship in churches that emphasizes the wholeness of the word as testifying to, to Christ. So I would urge us to say, we want to we want to do the kinds of things we're talking about because that's really the way the Bible has been read across these two thousand years of church history. We're we're in good company to have a cloud of witnesses before us like this. So I know that it varies from church to church, truly, brother. And I know your background and my background, uh, other other friends that we might know who love biblical theology and love seeing Christ in the Word. We we uh, would love to see churches now pursue that, mm-hmm. cultivate that. And I I am confident that what I see from my perspective is a renewal of this very kind of thing within churches. Yeah. So truly, my hope is that, that what will happen is a generation is going to be rising up, taught within churches to see Christ in the word in a way that the saints of old did. And so I would love for that to, to catch like fire, you know. It's cool. I want the reader to know it's like, okay, so the book is called 40 questions about typology and allegory. And it's not like 40 arbitrary questions, but there's like part two, for example, there's section A, B, and C. And section B is this entire section. It's like, say it's five questions. How was typology practiced in the early church? Next one. How was typology practiced in the middle ages? And then it goes on to early modern era, enlightenment, late modern, which is really valuable. Cause I'm like, did your hardest, did your hardest Voss make this stuff up? You know? So it's like, <laughs> Just surveying that really stokes me out, you know, and yeah, you were I'm just glad. quoting Irenaeus and it was very, that was very good. So anyways, um, I, I, I had notated that I was going to be interviewing you um, on Facebook and ask if anyone had any questions and someone, this question is so legit. You might have just, you might be like, oh, I know the answer. Like I've totally thought about this or, but it was so good and so straight to the point, but I'm going to hit you with two questions in one. So the first right. question is. My uh, Facebook friend named Jared asked this. Why hasn't typology been systematized yet? Ooh, I like that one. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm going to just tell you the other one too. What is the relationship between biblical theology and typology and allegory and echo and all that stuff? Yeah, so the with the first question, by systematize, maybe he means why hasn't all of this been sorted out with a consensus maybe among theologians where it's been clearly worked out with criteria that everybody would agree on. Maybe that's what he means by systematized. Probably. Um, That's my guess because yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, if that's what he means by that, and I hope I'm not misunderstanding his question, but if that is what he means by that, I think part of the um, part of the answer there is like many secondary and tertiary issues uh, we could include some hermeneutical approaches that would be among those. And and so as, as um, Bible readers, as Christians trying to understand the Old and New Testaments, not everybody has understood typology to play a strong role. Mm. And that doesn't mean they can't see truth in the scriptures. You know, that doesn't mean they can't understand who Jesus is. That doesn't mean they don't believe he fulfilled Old Testament patterns and prophecies. But they might not say the kinds of things about 
typology that that I or others would. And uh, and granting that, I think that that those kinds of differences are going to prevent a a strict systematization of reading typologically. I mean, I'll give you an example. So a few years ago, I remember being in a conversation with a a professor at a seminary that will remain unnamed. And this professor had been teaching the Old Testament for many years. He said, um, and this is my, this is nearly verbatim um, to what he said. He, He told me typology plays almost no role in the way I read the Old Testament. And uh, now he did qualify it by saying almost, almost no role, but that's still a pretty incredible claim that it plays almost no role in the way I read the Old Testament. I would argue that typology plays a major role in the way the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. So yeah. that's a huge, that's a huge difference there, right? And, um, and this means... This means if a brother like that, who loves Christ, believes the confessions about who Jesus is, if he's willing to, to be reluctant typologically about the Old Testament, then um, however widespread that perspective is, you know, it's going to inhibit systematizing something like typology. So I would love for, you know, I would love for more people to read the Bible this way. But um, there are a host of assumptions that they might not share that lead to typological reading making sense. If they hold different assumptions, typological reading seems maybe ludicrous to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the second question about typology relating with biblical Actually, theology and- Before echoes. you- Oh yeah, go ahead. I want to do a follow-up. Sure. Um, you know, we there's been the resurgence, you know, I think, I don't know if it's the last 20 years with Sidney Gridness, I don't even know how to say it, mm-hmm. you know, and Nancy Guthrie and and the yes. short studies in biblical theology. There's all there. There are a lot of resources out resources out there, but all, but most of them, well, actually, with the exception of yours, most of them are almost like um, one person's findings, right? So, like, I think it's Sydney who does like Genesis and Daniel, right, right. You know, and and, and or it's a certain subject. Maybe what the question is, and maybe this isn't a question, but actually, it's a good one. Is there anything out there that said, all right, here's like, here's the 48 steps. To- <laughs> you know, I, you brought up Sydney um, and it, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name either. Gridenus, something like that. I, you mentioned how he's written on certain Old Testament books. I, maybe you've heard of a, of a book he's written, though, that's not about an Old Testament book. It's called Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So yeah. he does some on Psalms or, or, or Genesis and Daniel. Um, I found that his Preaching Christ from the Old Testament was really helpful, that particular volume, yeah. who, which uh, gives you various ways to see Christ, including uh, typologically. I also think Greg Beale does a wonderful job in this subject. G.K. Beale has a book um, called the Temple and the Church's Mission, as well as the New Testament use of the Old Testament. These volumes, uh, I think, open up a a way of understanding typology that I resonate with big time. Yeah. I, I also think Dr. Jim Hamilton, who teaches at Southern Seminary, he has a book called What is Biblical Theology? Uh, and I think the subtitle is something like Understanding the Bible's symbolism and patterns. Well, so they're, they're offering various ways and steps and considerations to read this way, because in the end, I don't want this to just be my subjective approach to scripture mm-hmm. 
or somebody else's subjective approaches. Someone's just mere opinion. Uh, I want I want the way of reading the Bible to be something that others would be able to look at. And it's like a math formula. You know, you want to be able to to show your work and somebody follow through yeah. the way yeah. you've solved an issue and yeah. be able to say, yeah, I see how you did that. Yeah. And I think I could do that, too. Mm. And and so that's that's more of what we're after here is um, is trying to 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 show our work with resources like this and uh, as well as to demonstrate, you know, the conclusions we've drawn, but hopefully so that others will seek to imitate that. Yeah. So Jared, I hope, I hope that hits some of it, but I know he's read like all those books, you know, we've had Bill on the show and stuff. So, yeah. so Jared hit, hit some, uh, if you got any questions, man, post them up. We'll see if we could <laughs> back to Dr. Chase. Um, I love that you love Dr. Hamilton. I do, man. You You're know, always I referencing him and I like how you honor him. That's cool. He was, uh, and I, and I don't, uh, I don't think I'm overstating it when I put it this way, uh, Jason. Jim Hamilton has impacted my reading of the Old Testament more than anybody else I know, and wow. and so his, uh, his impact, it's continued to be the gift that keeps on giving. So I was, I was eager to try to honor him with this book, uh, which is just a, you know, a try, uh, an attempt to contribute to the overall discussion but with a larger, larger view of seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And, um, and Dr. Hamilton has been so helpful for me and so many thousands of others. So I thank the Lord for him. I thought it was bonkers. I'm like, oh, uh, Dr. Um, what's his name? Jim Hamilton? Yeah, Jim? Jim Hamilton. Yeah, I think I have, my God, I don't know. I have one of his books, but as you were quoting him, you had put the year he was born. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think it was the year he was born. And it said 1974. I don't know if he wrote the book in 74 or he's, that means he's only like a few years older than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in his forties. Yeah, that's right. Oh man, that's right. Okay. And he's still, you know, cranking out books. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that the Lord will give him many fruitful writing projects to bless the church. Totally. Oh, so yeah, anyways, the other question was, what is the relationship between biblical theology and typology and echoes yeah. and shadows and all this? So I think biblical uh, theology is a way of trying to see the wholeness of scripture and its various connections, tracing a theme or seeing uh, inner biblical connections among the biblical authors and typological reading is a way to do biblical theology. Mm -hmm. So I think biblical theology is a broader topic. Um, in fact, um, I've been really looking forward to reading a new book that Kriegel has put out called 40 Questions About Biblical Theology, uh, because I think that uh, just a subject like that has garnered such important interest. Mm. And um, typological reading would be a way of trying to do biblical theology, to see progressive revelation, to note the organic connect. Uh, organic connections among biblical authors and to try to imitate their perspectives. Can you, so can you define typology and allegory um, and, and anything else that you might think, I mean, you have a whole section where you sort of hit a lot of, a lot of these terms yeah. and it might sound boring to someone, but they're really good, you know, and you hit echo and all, all these different things, but at least typology and allegory and maybe unpack how they fit and play a role in the Bible's big story. Sure. So typology, um, there's a standard definition you'll see in books from time to time that define typology. So I'm going to touch on it first. It tends to focus on a person, uh, event, or, or institution that anticipates something later on in redemptive history. And it may mean, you know, the final judgment. It may mean the new creation. It may mean the person and work of Jesus. But there's something earlier in scripture that is 
embedded intentionally designed mm. to point forward. Um, so reading typologically is a way of trying to discern patterns that are anticipating future work, especially Christological types dealing with, with Christ himself. So what I've found though, when you look in Hebrews or if you look in the gospels, I'm comfortable broadening the definition a little bit more. I'd want to include things like person, office, place, thing, institution, yeah. uh, event. There's a, a myriad of things that point forward. And to give you a few examples of what I mean. So, um, you know, in redemptive history, I think you could say that the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament uh, points forward or is a type of the new heavens and new earth or new Jerusalem in the New Testament, or that the office of the prophet was anticipating or pointing forward to Christ, who is the word made flesh to be the revelation of God drawn near to sinners, surpassing every other prophet, uh, or something like David, the king, uh, that his reign and, and his uh, and his yeah his reign and kingship would point forward to the future mm -hmm. anointed one, the Christ. Uh, you could go all the way back to figures like Adam, uh, who is a type of the one to come, Romans 5 tells us. So I think you could isolate persons, events like the Exodus, events like the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, these are all Old Testament ways of looking at the whole of the canon, those events connecting to something later on because of Christ. The way of reading type, uh, the, the way we want to read typologically is to assume that Jesus is the reason the Old Testament exists. The whole purpose of the Old Testament exists to testify to the coming Messiah. Mm. It's just that the Old Testament is filled with shadows and patterns and anticipations. It's, it's a more dimly lit room. I, I've always enjoyed that analogy in particular because Christ illuminates the Old Testament uh, by his own teaching and explanation to his disciples, he wants them to see the Old Testament in light of what he has done and who he is. Yeah. So that invites a, a, a manifold um, a set of examples about uh, events, people, places. So typological, typological reading is a way of looking at earlier events or people or places, those kinds of things that anticipate something later in redemptive history that have to do with the work of Christ, present or future. Mm -hmm. the, um, the language about allegory, um, allegorical reading is a way of looking at a text and saying, well, I know the text is saying this, but it means something deeper in this text than just what's on the surface. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are certain kinds of genres that actually lend to this kind of reading really well. Uh, one way to illustrate allegorical interpretations of things would be the parables of Jesus. So in the parable of uh, the sower and the seeds and the soils, he is identifying for his disciples what each of these soils or, or the, the places, the seed lands, what they actually represent. Mm -hmm. and, and this means Jesus is expecting them to understand that when he's talking about seed and soils, those represent something. Uh, the sower is symbolic. The seed is symbolic. The soils or the different places, the seed lands, they mean something. And um, Jesus himself tells many parables. And I think one way to approach his parables is to say, are there 
common images or symbols that would lead us to identify a deeper significance uh, or interpretation here. So you have something like parables. Um, uh, you have examples like the Song of Solomon. This particular Old Testament book is filled with poetic imagery, imagery about uh, things that are Edenic. Uh, there's language about garden. There's language about the parts of the male and the female. Uh, there's language about love and trees and couches. And this poetry, this symbolism and the imagery is meant not only to ignite our imagination to see the beauty and wonder of the covenant love shared between this couple, but um, to point forward to Christ and his church, like the covenant of marriage always has from Genesis forward. Uh, so there's, there's more going on. That's what allegory is trying to say to the reader. Now, we don't want to be um, we don't want to be rash readers where we're simply saying, well, here's what I think is going on and you offer up something else. And it's right. just your opinion versus mine. If I'm offering something that I'm calling a deeper meaning in a text, uh, an allegorical reading, if you will, or a figurative reading, I want to be able to demonstrate textually why I think that uh, we, one of the reluctances that I so resonate with uh, is that, Allegorical reading has been terribly abused uh, with plenty of episodes in church history to illustrate it. And, um, and sometimes we can then throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. and say, well, because allegorical readings have been sometimes poorly offered or poorly argued, then, uh, then we want to avoid that altogether. That's just going to bring confusion. Instead, I want to say that however we read and interpret the Bible, we want to be able to demonstrate from the text what we are arguing. I'll give you an, a, cl a classic example here, and this is um, uh, Rahab's cord in Joshua chapter 2. You know, Rahab's cord hangs from the window, and um, a common interpretation in church history is that that's about the cross. Now, somebody might say, well, it could also just be a cord. It could just be a scarlet cord that's hanging in the window. Why do you have to have it more than that? Um, so there have been plenty of readers who will not go the road of seeing anything Christological there. And I understand that reluctance. Mm -hmm. But if we zoom out from the cord, if we just zoom out like a camera to say, what's going on in Joshua 2? Well, the Israelites, they're going into the promised land and they're going to cross the Jordan River and they're going to conquest the enemies and hostile uh, armies of the Canaanites. And they're going to do so by God's command. And Rahab wants her family spared. So these spies who've entered the land to converse with Rahab about this, they're told, um, or they tell her to hang something in her window, and then the judgment will go to the other houses and not hers. Well, let's think about what's just recently happened in Israel's history. They've just come out of Egypt, and the Egyptian exodus was by the catalyst of a 10th plague where the firstborn's blood was shed, a uh, firstborn lamb, and so the uh, firstborn of of uh, Israel would not die. The lamb's blood was on the house, uh, the doorposts, and the judgment would pass over those houses. If we read zoomed out from Joshua 2, I think we're actually going to see Exodus parallels in the text. But what's significant about looking at the Passover? We know the Passover, the Exodus, is a forward-pointing type of the person and work of Christ. He's our mm -hmm. Passover lamb. He's brought us victory um, yeah. by his work so that judgment passes over us. Well, all of a sudden thinking about Rahab's story might not seem so wild and outlandish anymore. Yeah. If we can connect its patterns 
contextually to what's gone on conceptually in Exodus. In that way, Rahab's deliverance, like the deliverance of the Israelites, forward points to the fact that Christ is our ultimate covering and his death covers us from judgment that passes over um, the righteous. So, you know, there are, there are bad ways to, to argue for a conclusion that's Christological. What I strongly want to emphasize in my book is that to read typologically or to read allegorically, let's make a case for why we think that. Right. That way somebody can't charge us with just engaging in imaginative word plays and speculation um, that has often been the case with allegorical reading. So that's, a, that's just an example that I think could help us illustrate what I'm trying to do in the book. That was the web of glory you just wove. Hallelujah. Come on, bro. All right, I'm going to be, a, I got a, like a stick in the mud question for you. Okay. So awareness of typology and allegory indeed get us from shadows to the real thing, from type to antitype. But do they get us anywhere else once we see Christ in the Old Testament? So that is, if it's all about Christ or, or, or something connected to the work of Christ, right? Yeah. Then is life, is the Christian life spent uncovering like a detective? You like that snappy word? You like what I'm doing here, right? Like, so am I supposed to be like a, de like a detective, a Gnostic? I'm, I'm throwing them all out right now, right? Like, and find Jesus on every page. Or can there be, I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm just right hook. Here we go. Or can there be anything derived from what we read at like face value? surface level reading like for example maybe just good old-fashioned glimpses of the character of god or perhaps yeah. way that we as christians can best enjoy this fallen yet good world or maybe the like a glimpse into the ultimate telos of creation sorry long-winded coming at you no but i love that question jason so uh, i think we uh, we can benefit tremendously and be edified deeply thinking about the character of God, asking questions about narratives and stories. You know, what does this show me about God's character? Uh, what does this tell me about mankind that I need to know? What is a work or word of God here that I need to ponder and reflect on? You know, common hermeneutical questions like that are so fruitful in our devotional lives. I want to add to that. I don't see oh, any of these okay. things as competing uh, with, with somebody reading the Bible who has maybe not approached it with a typological instinct. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to see Jesus um, in, in every verse, though. That is not what I'm trying to do. But where there seem to be covenantal and redemptive significance to characters and events that the New Testament authors seem to pay attention to, I want to look at their cues and say, well, they've only written so much. They've not told us everything that can possibly be seen in the Old Testament. So we can try to imitate their moves, though we are uninspired, and uh, and do our best to, to rejoice in, in how the Old Testament anticipates the Lord. But um, but I do think we can we can find great delight in not trying to you know identify new types in the Old Testament. Still, we can find delight in asking good and healthy questions about the text in our devotional times. So I'm, I, I would think of the Bible as a kind of spiraling uh, well of deep joy that we recognize these pages, these stories, these two testaments are boundless for us in a sense. We will live our lives marveling at how deep and how grand 
the love of God is in these stories and the grace of God and the person and work of Christ foreshadowed and fulfilled. We won't come to the end of this experientially. And that's a good thing. And I think the reason for this is we're always growing. We're always learning. And, uh, and if you're anything like me, I forget stuff that I learned years ago all the time. So I will, I will, I will learn something that I realize I knew once or had heard before. And it's like, you know, striking gold all over again. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, we should delight in that. We should just press into that with, with abandon and, um, and recognize that something like a pool that has a shallow end and a deep end, we can come into the Bible as new believers, uh, asking good questions about the word, trying to interpret it faithfully, preach it faithfully. And Lord willing, what would happen is over the years, we would, we would increase our depth and, and we would increase our maturity and wisdom. And with that, uh, we would find that the word of God is not exhausted by just the, the number of years we've spent. That's really good news because I don't think we have to fear that if we read the Bible through every year or if we, you know, pick up somebody's commentary on this particular book, that, uh, that therefore we've, we've got it all at that point. That's just not true. And that's because we are always changing. The word of God is meant to transform us. And as the word of God renews and transform us, transforms us, I have found that it's richly edifying to read typologically as, as a way the Lord encourages me. Um, and, and, uh, and yeah, so I, I want that for others. I just lobbed that up there and you did like a, a Jordan, like backboard breaker. Oh well goodness. played, sir. <laughs> so I, I heard, this is the part that I love. You said something like, you're not trying to take away or replace sort of that, um, authorial intent, right? You're just sort that's of right. adding that divine authorial intent, which is, I wish I, I mean, that's so common sense. Shame on me. I haven't really thought that. So I, that's very helpful for me, bro. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jason. I, I really do want to affirm that the divine authorship of scripture is crucial to the foundation of typological reading. We're trying to say that as we read in the Old Testament and see things foreshadowing Jesus, that's not because, you know, a particular biblical author was the be all end all here and thought of it all himself. But yeah. the Lord is using these authors and across all of these many centuries to tell the shadow stories of Christ. The word shadow story is a, a, a phrase that my friend Patrick Schreiner used in, um, in some of his writings. And I have found that to be such a helpful way of conceiving mm. the Old Testament stories. They're shadow stories. Something is giving them light from beyond. And the Christ we love, the living Christ, uh, has shown his light into the Old Testament enough to where his shadows are cast over these stories and prophecies and psalms. And, um, and, and I think our joy in Christ increases as we see how those anticipate him. So I'm going to, I'm going to circle back on a, on that subject a little bit down. Um, but, um, you, you said, you said reading with like these realities in mind is more than quote reading, but it's a kind of quote, quote seeing. Okay. So yeah. having said that, um, is this, is this now what, what, what we should be looking for as we read our Bibles? Like I think what's the ultimate fun? like as I'm re- am I just am I on a treasure treasure hunt for for p- things pointing to Christ or is there ever just the story itself 
like the story is the story that's the story <laughs> I think we always want to start with the story itself where it is, like in the Old Testament narratives with David or Goliath. The, the, um, the example of that story in 1 Samuel 17 is a classic one to illustrate how people will sometimes read only themselves into the stories. So yeah. if, you, if you say, um, you know, if, if what I get out of a story is where I can see myself in the story, am I David? Am I Goliath? Am I Saul? Um, we can read the Old Testament in a way that ends up only looking for moral lessons, mm. moral lessons that um, tell me what to avoid or what to imitate. Now, I have to hasten to add, I think the Old Testament gives us moral lessons all over the place. I think the New Testament reads the Old Testament and sees moral lessons there. Okay. Okay. So, with that in mind, I just want to say there is more to read and ask of the text uh, because David himself is a king pointing forward to his future son of the son of David, the offspring from second Samuel seven. And so there's a covenantal significance to David, which means the David story is not just about me and a victory that I would have over sin. It's about the victory in Christ, the son of David, that in union with him, I enjoy in the power that he has brought in the new life by the spirit. And so I, I think that this doesn't diminish our experience of reading the scriptures. I actually think we come away more encouraged to follow Christ faithfully with obedience and devotion because we see him there. There's something that happens, Jason, when we see Christ in the Old Testament that is renewing to our hearts. And that's what we need. We need to behold the Lamb of God. And as we behold Christ, as we um, rejoice in the ways that he is shadowed and patterned, this has this mysterious effect in our hearts of warming us with this gospel news. It warms us with desire and longing and joy. Those things are crucial for our faithfulness as disciples. We need to have those affections. Mm -hmm. Beholding Christ stirs our affections. Yes. When our affections are stirred, we are more desirous of and 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 uh, and faithful to be the people yeah. God has called us Amen. to be. So that that's a way to conceive of of interpretation that I think is enriched by typological reading. It's uh, if, it's good for our souls. If I was more technical, I would insert Matt Chandler yelling that I'm not David right here. But I don't know. <laughs> that's great. That, so. <laughs> yeah, you're right, man. I never never had much emotion or joy. That's why I resonated so much. Like I, when there is just something intrinsic, like you're like, it just, it's right. Right. It's, 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 it's serving its purpose. But yeah. anyways, this is good, bro. You are, you're, you're, you're on fire. Okay. You said that quote, in order to grasp the Bible's story, perseverance as a reader is necessary End quote, mm. but this probably rubs against some notions of a modern reader, this notion that you have to like work at it, right? Yeah. Shouldn't, um, oh, oh, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get all snappy again. Okay, here we go. Shouldn't a milk, shouldn't, <laughs> I'm actually laughing at myself. Shouldn't a milkmaid and a plowboy be able to read the Bible and get what is needed and God intended for salvation and godly living? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Peter and the others who were taught to read this way, you know, they were fishermen 
and they had oh, occupations oh. that that I think were um, very con very much in sync with their contemporaries to see Christ in the Old Testament, nonetheless. So I really don't think this is about some increasing intellectual prowess or anything like that. I really I really think that as we show people Christ in the Old Testament, this is something any believer can learn to grasp and appreciate. This is not uh, top shelf topics. Now I know the book's title is called 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, but we don't have to use that terminology if that terminology throws people. We can simply try to read the Bible and preach and teach the Bible in a way that shows people Christ. And if they are indwelt by the spirit of God and they are longing to grow as disciples, this resonates with them. I mean, I, haven't you heard stories that others have shared with me in their own experiences of Bible reading where they say, man, I feel like the lights have come on. I feel like I see something that I didn't for a long time. In fact, I wonder why I hadn't seen it before. And um, you, you hear people of all ages and all backgrounds rejoice in this kind of stuff. So yeah, I would say seeing Christ in the Old Testament was meant to be for everybody. And when you look in the early church, yeah, you look at the, the motley crew of people that were following Jesus, man, like they had all sorts of different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old. And, um, and they preached Christ from the scriptures, you know, Paul, you know, for example, when he goes to the synagogues in Acts, it tells us in Acts that he goes to the synagogue and, and argues or reasons Christ from the scriptures. Well, who's present at a synagogue? Well, everybody who's a, a, a faithful or, or God-fearing uh, Jew or Gentile, you have Jews and Gentiles present, you would have young and old present. And what is Paul doing? I mean, he is preaching Christ from the Old Testament to everybody, everybody. And brother, that's the way it ought to be. We ought to, we ought to do that and lift him high and, and do it unashamedly. Um, because as Christians, we don't want to pretend Jesus didn't happen when we preach and teach the Old Testament. Uh, we want to do what Paul and the others have done and read it with the light of Christ shining all through its books. Oh, Dr. Chase, taking me to, to school right there. Oh my goodness. The, they were fishermen. Yeah, man. They wasn't top shelf. They were fishermen. And at the synagogues was like your uncle and your aunt, your cousin and you. Yeah, they were. <laughs> well played, sir. Okay. <laughs> You make a, oh my goodness, this one right here. <laughs> you make a frightening yet exciting claim in the book, namely that us Christians should reflect on the New Testament author's methods hmm. and then imitate them. Uh, you said the following, you asked the following compelling questions, quote, if we do not seek to imitate how the biblical authors read the Old Testament, including how they identified types. What's the alternative for interpreters? And <laughs> you keep going to interpret the old Testament in ways Jesus and is, oh, oh, and that your response is to interpret the old Testament in ways Jesus and his apostles didn't. And then you said to adopt a method, assuming <laughs> to adopt a method, assuming we will arrive at conclusions more reliable and sure than if we treated the interpretive moves of the biblical authors as lenses we should put on end quote man that was a that was a gut shot so having said that there can, first of all can you speak to that reality like that we could do that and i'm gonna the one stick in the mug in that in that one is 
there's some New Testament usages of the Old Testament that are like random merging of various stories mm. and passages. It's like, can I do that? You know what I mean? So anyways. Yeah, I, man, I love double. that question because I, I think it hits at the heart of, of why people might be reluctant to read typologically. They may say something like, look, the, the apostles were inspired. I'm not inspired. So don't tell me to imitate them or study their methods because I'm not infallible. They, they were used of the spirit. And, uh, and I understand that objection. In fact, the first time I ever heard somebody say we should imitate the moves of the, of the biblical authors, it was Jim Hamilton in a seminary class. And, and I thought that just sounded crazy. Yeah. I thought, how can we do that? And then, uh, you know, he was so patient with me and with others who had questions or concerns and uh, he was so persuasive. And if we consider the alternative, you know, what I was arguing there in the section you quoted, we're going to interpret the Old Testament with some sort of sets of instincts and criteria and interest. Where are we getting that? Okay, so we're, we're discipled to read the Old Testament somehow. If Jesus has taught his disciples and they have written not only gospels, but letters to the churches so that the, the non-apostle, non-inspired church members, the Corinthians, the Colossians, the, the letter to the Hebrews, their audience, um, they're, they're seeing the Old Testament at the direction of these letters and documents, these authoritative documents. The letter of Hebrews is a, is a perfect example of the kind of thing a Christian would say about the Old Testament in the early church. It is, it is a, mm -hmm. a, a walk around so many different stories and characters. If we, if we consider the alternatives um, or the alternative of, of going a different way, I, I don't think that's the safer path because we would, we would essentially be saying, I know Jesus and his disciples read the Old Testament this way, but I feel reluctant because I'm not sure I would get the conclusions right. Well, how can we be so sure that our alternative method will be better? Okay. I mean, that's, that's, okay. that, I don't think we should have confidence in that. Instead, I think the way we study interbiblical interpretation in the Old Testament, we notice how Isaiah uses earlier passages mm. or the Psalms use earlier passages. Uh, we notice how the book of Psalms uses the wilderness generation and numbers. And we can, we can notice methods or ways of incorporating those earlier texts in those later authors of the Old Testament. We should do that with the new. We can study how the gospel writers use the Old Testament and how the letters use it. And they use it in different ways. You know, earlier, Jason, we were talking about uh, Sidney Grydenis, however you pronounce his last name. <laughs> and uh, the brother, uh, he must get all sorts of different pronunciations, I'm afraid. Ah. Uh, and I'm butchering it, I'm sure. But um, in preaching Christ from the Old Testament, he lists different ways that the New Testament authors have used the old. And and that is that is a helpful treatment to illustrate it with so many passages. If we consider typological reading and how the New Testament authors notice patterns and, and shadows in the Old Testament. They are, you know, their letters and their gospels are only so many words. Uh, they, have not, they have not told us everything they could tell us. Uh, in fact, at the end of John's gospel, he says, I haven't even told you all the miracles Jesus did. The, the world wouldn't have enough books. So there's, there's always more to be said. And, and if I could just take that idea for a moment and say, looking into the Old Testament, we're, we're never given the impression by the New Testament authors that they've told you everything to see. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, yeah. we might be surprised 
that they didn't mention someone like Joshua being a type or Samuel or Isaac, Isaac of all people, or Noah or someone like Joseph. And, and yet, I think that what's fascinating about some of these unidentified types or figures that I just mentioned is that they're paralleled amazingly with other identified types, whether it be someone like Abraham or someone like Adam or someone like David or someone like Solomon. And I think G.K. Beale is right that if we can, if we can see ways that the, the New Testament authors have identified Old Testament types, they're giving us some examples to then imitate and, um, and we should do that humbly. We should do that in community and dialogue with the saints of old and contemporary with us mm -hmm. to say, here's what I'm seeing. Do you think this is something? Do you think there's something here? And, uh, and be willing to have pushback and be willing to say, you know what, that might've been over the top. I think I might be wrong here. <laughs> and so if, if, and yet um, I think being without, inspiration in our interpretation doesn't limit us to what we should see in the Old Testament. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We have the, the documents of the New Testament authors, and we have the tradition of the saints. We, we have good grounding to read confidently. So the, this is the classic throwback to you case study, right? Like Galatians 4, it's like talking about, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born to the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. The women are the two covenants. One's from Sinai, barren for slavery. She is Hagar. Oh, my gosh. I'm, you're on fire. So I'm sure you have the most slam dunk response. But I would, <laughs> even if I was like caught up in, um, caught up in the heavens, I don't know if I, I would ever concoct that, even if I was trying to. So... Can you hit me with a little something on that one? Yeah, man. So I think when you're reading in Genesis, you get the impression that Ishmael was the result of fleshly strategy, right? So yeah. Hagar says, how about, uh, or Sarah says, how about my maidservant Hagar? Uh, Abraham goes along with this. And with Abraham and Hagar together, you have Ishmael. But of course, it would be through Isaac, God's promised son, the uh, one that would come about by his power in the womb of Sarah. And so with Abraham's line, you have a division coming out of Abraham. You have the son born of promise and you have the son born of the flesh. And um, those, those particular lines, they, they are spiritually revealing as well. Ishmael had a kind of persecutorial stance toward Isaac and was sent out with the slave woman, right? Mm -hmm. In uh, Genesis 21. This means Paul, as he's reading the Old Testament, well, he doesn't deny at all the historicity of these texts. There was a real Abraham, a real Hagar, a real Sarah, a real Isaac, a real Ishmael. He just realizes that the way these narratives are unfolding, there is more going on here for us to learn spiritually about these guys. Because if you have, if you have Israelites who are not following the Lord, they are rejecting the law and promise of God. They are showing themselves to not have a heart for Yahweh. I mean, they're basically of the flesh like Ishmael was. He becomes, if you will, their spiritual, um, their, their spiritual identifier. They are like him uh, outside the covenant. If you have Israelites who are 
who are following the Lord and believing the promises of God like Abraham did, these are people of faith, and the, therefore they are in line with the promise. They're like Isaac. Paul recognizes even in the Old Testament, not all Israel is Israel. Now, he says that in Romans 9, but I think you can read Genesis and realize not all Israel is Israel, if you will. Like the descendants of Abraham really did have spiritual divergent points, and those become lessons to understand and apply, which Paul's doing in Galatians 4. And this is a crucial point about allegory with a narrative. I gave earlier examples about uh, the Song of Solomon or about parables, which are intended to have imagery and even um, hypothetical accounts to make uh, a different point. If you have something like the Genesis narratives, well, these are history. So Paul recognizes uh, that you can see a greater significance spiritually about what's going on with Abraham's family. You don't deny the historicity, though. You have to consider the genre. So allegorical reading for Paul in a narrative didn't deny the historicity. Mm -hmm. It just said, yes, this real history is also telling us something significant for the division within Israel, the people of promise and the people of the flesh. I think uh, like in the Galatians passage, right before Paul goes in and like explains the allegory, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And then he launches in. I right. think like what you just said, um, you know, and even, and even I, I get, I get his flow of thought, but I think I would never feel confident to say, you guys want to know what this is, this is an allegory. If it was like maybe one that I had it brought up, but are we allowed to make such a claim that, Hey, those, this, bro, this is allegory right here. Or be like, or do we need to kind of like buffer it and be like, you know what I'm thinking? This kind of seems like that. You know what I mean? Do we got to yeah. be like biblically correct or? Yeah, I think more the latter, right? Because we're wanting to humbly suggest something and to be able to make an argument textually. So what I, what I tried to um, just rattle off uh, in these last few minutes was some examples in Genesis 16 or Genesis 21 that were tying together a set of spiritual divergent points with Ishmael's life and Isaac's life in the covenant. And um, if I can't argue or justify an allegorical reading that I'm suggesting, then I really shouldn't make it. Right, right. But, but if, I'm, if I'm offering something and I can point to, okay, here's why I'm thinking this, because in this narrative earlier, here's something that happens, here's something that happens. Um, yeah, I gave this example uh, the other day uh, talking about uh, my book. There, there's this story in 1 Samuel 17 where David gets Goliath, right? But he, he goes by um, this, this brook to get stones, He's got his slingshot, but he pulls five stones uh, from, from the water. Now, this is a narrative. It's a historical story. And we might say, well, five, that's interesting. And sometimes numbers can have significance. Well, if somebody offered the five elements or uh, the five <laughs> senses, uh, you know, smell and taste and hearing, I don't, I don't think you could argue textually that that's a sound reading at all. But what is interesting is that David is going to go fight Goliath, who is a Philistine. And in Philistia, Philistia is made up of five cities. And Goliath is from Gath. And if you had any sort of offering that you would make as an interpretation of the number, you would want to make some sort of point that made sense in the context. And the fact that he's going after a Philistine and the Philistia territory having five cities, uh, you know, Ekron and Gath and, and the others. 
that I can't remember right now. Um, I was impressed that, that you hit me with two. I'm not gonna yeah, lie. That, that's like, Whoa. Two I've got those only two I can remember. And um, if you if you um, if you see, yeah, he's picking up five stones. Is that just a coincidence? Whoosh, you know, it could maybe it was only five stones and they're only stones and it shouldn't mean anything else. Mm. But if someone does look at a number and say, hey, could that symbolize or represent something even more? So well, we have to say, what could that be, right? Wow. And another example, um, in the Gospels, Jesus's disciples at one point are picking up basketfuls mm -hmm. and they're picking up 12 basketfuls of bread. Well, the number 12 is very significant because 12 is representative of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And there are 12 disciples that Jesus has gathered around as a new Israel. And, and so, yeah, this is not an arbitrary number. It's not that it could have been 11 or could have been 13. 12 is mentioned for a reason. And I don't want to say, well, that's because of something in the constellations or something about, you know, <laughs> modern technology or something about, you know, if I'm offering a reason for a symbolic use of a number, it needs to make sense within the context of what's going on. And in John chapter six, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the true bread that comes down from heaven. By Jesus giving bread to the people, he is foreshadowing the fact that he is bread for the people. He's bread for Israel. And the 12 basketfuls speak of his superabundance. Uh, it speaks of his greatness and blessing. And, and, and so I think you could argue for a meaning with that number. Other people might say, can't it just be 12 baskets? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose you could make other comments about the story that are also true and leave the number alone. All, all I'm saying is, if you're offering a reason why the number could be significant, that has a deeper meaning here, then, then let's make our case in a way that would make sense canonically with the number 12. So that's, that's just a New Testament example. No, that's good, like control of error. It actually kind of frees me up. I'm like, okay. Okay, I'm not. I don't have to just like yeah the <laughs> the constellations. Okay, I got one for you. I don't remember where this is from. It's in one of the. I think it's one of the synoptics. But it's like, oh yeah, like the scripture says, Jesus maybe it was where he was born or grew up or something. But it wasn't like um ah, you know what I'm trying to get out. Like, do you know what I'm trying to say here? I'm it's not like, sure. Where was it? Okay, whatever. Forget it. Okay. okay. So here we go. You did good. You did good on all those, brother. Those were like, none of those. I I didn't just politely say, oh, that's good. Like it was literally a hundred out of a hundred, and yeah, and that stokes me out because it's it's real life. It's not just a like theological hobby. So I appreciate that. Okay, so how does one like we're listening to this interview and we're like, oh, okay, okay. I want that joy. I want I want what is the Bible is written in such a way. How does one set out on this journey to read with this lens? What what tools should we have in our tool bag? What lenses should I put on? Like, should I write some definitions at the front of my Bible to like reference or some passages to act as reminders that I'm to filter? Like, for, we're talking like your aunt. She's like, sweetie, how do I do that? I heard your podcast. It was so good. <laughs> you know, the this is not going to sound like a, a deep answer initially, but I do think that faithful, disciplined reading of the Old Testament. I, we can't underestimate the importance of this. You know, the biblical authors read the Old Testament with a sensitivity that only comes through diligence and the passing of time. You know, patience as Bible readers, we, we develop skills um, 
it's like developing muscle memory. If you, uh, I've used this illustration before as well. A few years ago, I wanted to learn how to, to work a Rubik's cube and, and solve it. I was inspired by my younger nephew and I thought, man, I want to learn to do this. I've always wanted to figure it out. And there are some algorithms that you've got to work once you're getting to the last layers of it. And then once you know the moves with your, with your hands, you can close your eyes and finish the cube entirely because the, the hand movements become muscle memory. Now that, that is to say, we, we come to the Bible very green with a blank slate of, of uh, its stories when we're first, first exposed to it. How do we begin to wrap our minds around the scriptures? Well, we have to set aside time and I, we have to plan to do it. We've got to set aside time and we've got to read the Bible and we've got to read it not just once. We've got to read not just some of the books. We've got to try to follow the storyline from beginning in, in Genesis forward. And we need to give ourselves some room to, to, uh, to grow here and be patient with ourselves and not feel rushed to see everything we want to see mm -hmm. and understand everything we want to understand. Um, we can sometimes be too hard on ourselves when what we need is some time to pass and we need to give ourselves some disciplined months or even years of cultivating a well of understanding of the Old Testament stories. But I'm convinced that as we do that, and as we're sitting under faithful preaching that proclaims the word, what happens over time, I think, is a kind of muscle memory that develops. It's a, it's a, a set of, of kind of instinct where, where we might say, you know what, based on these particular sermons I've heard or my own reading in the scriptures, here's something that has now started to stand out to me. I've noticed that this here sounds like something earlier over here. Is that something? It's like if we watch a detective show the second time through or read a fiction story the second time through, the plot is already clearer to us as we're going through it again. And because it's clearer to us, we're able in our minds to look at other things. Something psychological is happening through repeated readings of scripture. We're able to already note what we've seen already, and our eyes are more able to see other things. It's kind of like when you've driven the same road multiple times and you you go into into just sort of autopilot, you know, and you're 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 driving and you realize, man, I didn't have to intentionally turn here or there yeah. as consciously as I used to. I was able to see or do other things or have conversations. Yeah. And you're able to accumulate things that if you're first trying to go somewhere and you've never been there before, you know, we have to say to everybody in our van, hey, everybody be quiet. You know, we're trying to figure out where we are, you know, so you can only do so much the first time. <laughs> I'm just trying to illustrate for you, brother, that as Bible readers, we want to get into this kind of reading, giving ourselves room and patience and time to unfold. But I, I can't underestimate either the importance of sitting under faithful preaching, because mm. if we sit under faithful preaching, the word of God, the whole counsel of it ought to be proclaimed over time to us. Mm. The, the, the uh, pastor, Lord willing, would be able to proclaim Christ from the Old and New Testaments for us. And in this way, we're having it modeled for us. Mm -hmm. This is so crucial. Yeah. I also think we need good resources. We, we need to be able to, to have things outside the Bible that are helps, that are, that are not, you know, uh, overly technical in the way that we'd feel like we'd have to get a degree in order to access this particular yeah. book uh, or to buy it from this particular publisher because of the price. We so want to send to... this podcast to your aunt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we want to be able to, to give good resources like uh, audio, uh, video, as well as uh, the written word. I also think community 
we can't underestimate this either. If we study the Bible with other people, and as we grow in conversations with one another, these kinds of issues are going to come up. And we're going to be able to ponder things and be asked things that we haven't considered before. And that happens in community. It happens in community. We need group conversations, whether it's a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night small group or some sort of accountability setting uh, throughout the week where we are sitting and praying and talking about the Bible. When we have stuff like this, we can trust the Lord to use that over time to awaken and deepen the instincts and uh, what you might call our hermeneutical muscle memory. Yeah. We, and then we will find ourselves years into studying the Bible, looking back and thinking, you know, by God's grace, we've come this far. We've been able to see these things and understand this story. And then we realize, you know, we've only scratched the surface of, of the word and its depths. You know, we're, we're, we're wading into waters that are, are far deeper than, than our lifetime will, will complete. So, and that's all good news because it never gets dull. Yeah. Sometimes, bro, this is so off topic, but when it is terrifying when you're driving and you're like, Oh my gosh, I just drove four miles and I don't remember seeing one thing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you think, how fast was I going? I don't even remember looking at my speedometer. And so my kids. <laughs> yeah. The autopilot stuff is really crazy. And we realize how familiar something can be to us that then frees us up for other stuff. So I I'm convinced that our reading of the Bible can, can develop that kind of layer of familiarity in a good way that allows us to see other things and stories that are familiar to us. We need, we need large chunks of scripture. Like you're saying, you're seeing exegetical Yes. Um, memory, exegetical muscle memory and having it modeled by our teachers and our pastors and, yep. and, and sort of talking about it with the community that super good stuff. I'm going to hit you with like, as we're closing down, I mean, this has been really, really extremely helpful. Crazy. I'm going to hit you with some, um, just some, just some case studies and just want to hear like your thoughts on either maybe you have an interpretation maybe you're like <laughs> i don't know but here we go so we got jacob's bizarre breeding program in genesis 30 31 you got some <laughs> sticks some speckled and colored sheep trickery and so my my question on this one is actually like first of all is there a is there jesus under every bizarre story so is 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 something in here has to do with like creation of all redemption restoration um or is it just like that's what what happened we we got some some folk magician stuff going on here <laughs> yeah so i think that there was some obvious superstition in the ancient world that led them to do that kind of stuff but the the lord was gracious to work through that nonetheless mm -hmm. uh, because in the end of the story i think the the reader is meant to take away that the lord has blessed jacob now um i don't see um the need to see christ in every bizarre story so in something like this if somebody wanted to offer a Christological reading, you know, I would be open to considering their particular claim. Mm. When I'm reading about this story, I look at the blessing of God that's on Jacob, wherever Jacob goes. So despite Laban's strategies against Jacob to defraud him and to keep him there uh, in Padan Aram, you have the Lord with Jacob blessing him in spite of that. Now, we might, we might be able to say, um, okay, later on with Joseph, 
like Jacob, Joseph is in situations of opposition or hostility, and the Lord is with Joseph, and the Lord is blessing Joseph. And we can draw encouragement from this because in Christ, the Lord has not only blessed us, his presence is with us, and he works all things for our good, despite the conscious efforts of people like a Laban or like Potiphar's wife against Joseph, who are seeking in some way to ruin or defraud or destroy us. Um, so I look at stories like this, and I think this should help us trust the Lord. This should help us see his hand at work, and even his hand at work when we don't know all the details of both sides. Yep, yep. Um, so I know that doesn't sound like a deeply Christological reading, but that's one way to try to read something in Jacob's story that reminds us maybe of Joseph's life and yep. how we can draw encouragement as Christians from that. That might be what you would call, though, a deeper reading of the text where, where I'm, I'm trying to draw out a lesson that's not spelled out there in chapter 30, but I think is illustrated by that story. Well played, sir. All right. Judges chapter four, classic story where like this lady, JL, drive, she, she takes a hammer and drives a tent peg through this guy's temple um, until this guy goes, he's like tired or something. He's laying asleep. I don't know, something like this. He goes down. So I was setting that question up. I'm like, what in the world could this possibly be? I was like, what's some bizarre <laughs> stories? And there's another one. I don't know if it's the same one where like they stabbed some fat guy and his bowels came. But anyways, yeah. um, so by the so here's a great example of an average Christian like me attempting to read the read with like a Christological hermeneutic, right? With right. allusions and echoes. So as I was setting that question up for you, something came to my mind. This is a great example. And you could like rebuke me, straighten me out, or this is real time, right? So I thought, okay, could there not be some parallel between the the tired, sleepy, wearied, wicked man being killed by a hammer and a tent peg, right? And then <laughs> obviously Jesus, who took the place as a wicked man, namely us, and he had nails driven through him when he too was weary after this long night. Um, uh, and in doing so, the enemy of God's people, namely, namely sin and death. So that's a great example. So like, I just made that one up. Am I, am I just <laughs> like, was that bogus? Was that like, whoa, bro, that's a stretch. And if it was a stretch, how, how can you tell me that's a stretch if it kind of makes sense to me and it's right? Man, I, so I, man, I really appreciate what you offered there. I think, I think one way to think about this particular Judges 4 story in light of what you've just shared and this, uh, this scene of, of death and peg in the temple is the judges as a whole are preceding the kings, right? The, these are the pre-monarch military leaders who are delivering the people of God. And kingship is a need highlighted near the end of Judges in a few chapters, even the last verse of Judges, actually, right? In Judges 21, 25, uh, it says here in my Bible, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Israel needs this king and um, there's not going to be a, a king like David for a while. We're going to see these judges over centuries through Judges 1 to, to 21. And these judges are anticipating the king's arrival. These are military leaders that are not monarchs. Yet they, um, they are part of God granting victory when his people are being opposed by adversaries. And there are occasions where an adversary might be overcome by a head episode, a head crush, a head death. 
Jim Hamilton has pointed out in an article and in his books that uh, when we see somebody die from a head wound, we might naturally think of Genesis 3 as we're thinking about the fullness of the canon, because in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman was going to overcome the serpent, uh, crushing his head as the serpent uh, wounds and strikes the heel of, uh, of Eve's future son. The head crushing thing is interesting then with Judges 4, as well as something like 1 Samuel 17, where Goliath is defeated with a wound where? Well, David, the mighty warrior, inflicts a head wound on Goliath and then cuts off his head. Uh, so there, there is this victory that's being, um, I think, demonstrated in Judges 4 that could recall someone, that. Someone buy this guy a beer. Well played. That was <laughs> Gene. All right, I'm going to hit you with another one. I just got two left, man. This is so helpful. Just practical style, right? So in the portion of the book, you do a little survey on various types, shadows, what, whatnot. And of Samson, you said that when he brought the house down in on itself with him inside, that might point us towards the fact that Jesus, quote, took the pillars of sin and Satan and tore them down, end quote. And yep, mm. I'm with you. Love it. Brings me joy. I see it. But... Like here's me. Here's just a lay a layman. I'm I'm gonna add something to it. I just want to I want to see where we draw the line. For example, can we go further and say, yes, he brought the pillars down in on himself, but when he did it, he stretched his arms out, right? So is it like he's on the cross? In, in other words, how far is too far now? Like it even just by saying that it almost seems silly. But but if we're sticking to this reasoning of justification, it Right. Who's to say no? I don't know. Right. And so so this would be where interpreters would certainly divide at, at a point like this, because there were instincts in the early church fathers to see outstretched hands in that way. And I think not only of, of Judges 7, uh, 16, that you just pointed out with Samson's hands, but I think of Moses when Amalek was embattled with Israel uh, in Exodus chapter 17. Moses's hands were holding up a staff. And as long as Moses's hands were raised up, Israel was winning. When Moses's hands were lowered, you know, they were, the, they were losing below. Uh, interpreters were very keen to see a picture of Christ. Here he is with his hands outstretched and accomplishing victory on behalf of his people. So I, I think the picture is fascinating and it does resonate Christologically. And I don't think it's just because the, the, the posture of his hands, I think it's more than that, but I think that can be added to the, the overall Christological picture that we're looking at. And I would do the same thing with Isaac. You know, Isaac is carrying wood up the mountain and Jesus is carrying wood to the cross. And, and even though, even though I wouldn't say, hey, you know, the wood, that's just obviously the cross. Isn't it interesting that the son of Abraham is carrying wood to the place where he will be offered as a sacrifice? So even if the wood alone doesn't take us to Christ, it is part of the overall Christological picture of the son of Abraham being offered up as a sacrifice. So I think we can read it with those instincts as long as we've got a fuller set of context that we're trying to establish and not one detail. Uh, to, to make one other comment, they I think this is where sometimes people would go awry with uh, Rahab's cord. To go back mm -hmm. to that for a moment, they would say, hey, it's red. Jesus's blood also red. Mm -hmm. Therefore, Joshua 2, 
gospel is at the cross. And so you, you, you might say, well, okay, the color, yes, we need more than that. Let, let's, let's look at that. That's interesting, but we need to have an overall set of conceptual or uh, thematic parallels, lexical links that, that are not dependent on the color. We need something more. So, yeah. So here's my final one. I'm going to yep. hit you with it. And then after that, maybe you could just share just the one that like edifies you and makes you like see Christ or value him more or cherish mm. him more. So here's this one, Jacob and Esau, the brothers, um, Jacob's the younger, right? So he's like the, you know, in, in this culture, it's like the older brother is he's the guy Esau's the elder. He, he's the one who gets the blessing, not the younger. And then Jacob comes to the father, right, to receive the blessing. But it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the, the older guy. But the younger brother comes clothed. And you, already, you probably already knew, but you know we're going with this now. He comes clothed with his elder brother. And, and the father gives the blessing to the person who doesn't deserve it because he's clothed with the younger brother. So I've, I've hit that to like John Walton, Dr. Beal. And they literally Beal just like, Nope. And then he just hit me with a straight. No. And Walton said, you literally, I think he like laughed at me. He's all, you literally, you ate, you, you drank too much Mai Tais or something. But <laughs> to me, that one is my favorite one, but yeah. no one's saying yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm open to that, man. I don't feel as oppositional as the, the, the faithful guys that you just named. I read those guys and I've benefited from their scholarship. Um, but this comes down to noting how interpreters have a different spectrum of feeling comfortable or more maximal of, uh, of mm. seeing certain things. Mm. If, we have, if we have somebody like Christ uh, whose righteousness we are clothed in. And, uh, and there are stories of, you know, an earlier Christ figure like Jacob in multiple settings, who is uh, clothed in other garments. There, there are these, you know, interesting parallels like that. And we want to say, well, what can we make of them? I would just want to see a, a case made um, with, a, with an argument that's not just my instinct. So if I've got an instinct about the text, which is always good to follow up with, what case can I make to them? Now, you might make that case to Greg Beale, and he would say, eh, I'm not sure I would do that. Or um, you might make the case to somebody and they'd think, you know, I've not thought about that before, <laughs> but there might be something there. So you, you, want, to, you want to be um, willing to see things that you haven't seen before and consider a case. Now, of course, it might not persuade somebody. They might look at that and say, it's an interesting argument. I wouldn't preach that. Um, so yeah, it's, and it, you asked me about my favorite as well. I'm glad to hear that that one is your favorite. I was thinking about um, the episode in Matthew um, where in Matthew 11 and 12, Jesus makes several statements about something that he's greater than. And uh, I like these particular comparisons because they're explicit with an old Testament example. And, and he uses this language about um, in Matthew 12 verse six about being greater than the temple. And there's something about the temple and its glory and and um, and brilliance from the Old Testament era that is so shocking for Jesus then to say what he does. So that the temple houses the glory of God in the most holy place in the tabernacle and in, in Solomon's temple. 
then um, it's the most important dwelling place on the earth. Uh, no other city has that temple. It's just Jer Jerusalem. It is, it is utterly shocking and it's, it's sheer craziness, unless it's true, for Jesus to say something greater than the temple is here. Well, if the temple is where you would go for the glory of God manifest in the Holy of Holies, how can something be greater than that? It, it sounds like a divine claim. It sounds like a, a claim of superiority where he says, the temple's pointing to me. I'm greater than the temple. Um, he also says in John 2, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. Jesus conceives of himself as a temple, but greater than any previous one uh, in the Old Testament. I've I've always loved the temple imagery in Old and New Testament uh, passages like that. So if you ask one that really stands out as a favorite of mine, that one comes to mind easily. It's just beautiful and um, and and moving. So I praise the Lord for it. Jesus is our temple. Amen, Pastor. Um, <clears throat> We've been talking with Dr. Mitch Chase. Without a doubt, this is like one of the best podcasts I've ever had. This is, man, why we exist. I feel so equipped. I hope the listeners are like, it doesn't, you know, I've been reading on this stuff for a while, but I feel like, okay, I could, like, I could be a part of this and it's not Gnosticism and it's not stretching. I, thank you so much. The book is called 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, Kregel Academic 2020. Not, I think it was just released in, I think, I don't know, November, not, not so long ago. As we mentioned, Craigle's uh, giving us two copies to give away. So come find us on Facebook, The Layman's Lounge. Like us and share this interview. You'll be entered. We'll announce in one week. Um, you could find some of Dr. Chase's articles at thegospelcoalition.org forward slash profile forward slash Mitch dash Chase. Um, we'll link that in the show notes. You could follow him on Twitter at Mitch. Mitchell Chase, yep. and then check out his personal site at mitchchase.wordpress.com, and we will post all those. Brother, any final thoughts or anything you're working on or anything else? You know, I've been, uh, this last week, I was able to contract with Crossway to do a volume on Resurrection Hope in uh, the Short Studies of Biblical Theology series. So that's a project that's on my radar right now, and I love the hope of the resurrection. So I look forward to writing about that. It's edifying for me personally. I hope it'll be a blessing to people. So I'm, th I'm thankful for that opportunity. They roped in the right guy. Thank you, brother. Well, it's so great to be with you, Jason. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you, brother. We came for salvation. We came for family, we came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to... Live.